Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and start with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love, for your mercies, for Jesus. We are thankful for the truths that you've revealed to us, for your movements on this earth at this time in human history and the preparation for your soon return. And we can see the agencies of heaven moving to war against the the agencies that would obstruct. And we ask that we can be empowered by you to be useful at this time in history, to prepare for your soon return. Be with us as we study today, that we can glorify you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Our class today is entitled Jacob the Supplanter, Lesson 9 in the Quarterly Genesis. And the second paragraph reads, Because Jacob deceives his father and steals the blessing from his older brother, he will have, he will have to flee for his life. In exile, God confronts him at Bethel. From then on, Jacob, the deceiver, will experience some deception himself. Instead of Rachel, whom Jacob loves, Leah, the older daughter, will be given to Jacob, and he will have to work 14 years to earn his wives. There are historical truths in this paragraph, and then there are interpretations or assumptions written into this paragraph. I wonder if you spotted them. Let's do the historical truths first. The historical truths, Jacob deceived his father into giving him the blessing that Isaac wanted to give to Esau. That's a historical fact. Jacob flees. That's a fact. Jacob, uh, God speaks to Jacob in a dream, showing him the ladder connecting heaven to earth. And Jacob himself is later tricked into marrying Leah and then uh, when he thought he was marrying Rachel. These are the facts. What are the interpretations or the assumptions? Did you spot them? Steals the blessing. How about this? This is the phrase. Jacob, quote, will have to flee for his life. Unquote. Did you spot the assumption in that? Did Jacob have to flee? Did he have other choices? Could he have chosen to repent and seek his brother out and ask his brother's forgiveness and his father's forgiveness? Could he have faced the results of his actions then and there and put his life in his brother's hands? Was that an option for him? Yes. Could he have surrendered to God then and there, repented before God, asked God to intervene in his behalf? Yes. Yes. Was that an option for him? Was fleeing then the only option for Jacob? He had to flee. Was it the best option for Jacob to flee? Or was it the one that seemed most logical, wise, appropriate from a human standpoint? Jacob had cheated Esau, lied to his father, Esau's out for blood, he's angry, says he's going to kill his brother. Survival drives dictate that we must either fight or flee. Or freeze. Mm -hmm. To protect self. And it appears very, very logical. It appears it's the only option he really had. But is it possible if he would have genuinely repented and trusted God... Then and there, God would have intervened in some way and turned aside Esau's wrath. Is that possible? Or is it not only possible, given who Jacob was, an understanding of his, his purpose in God's plan, highly likely? Do you advise to flee? Very next bullet. Thank you, Russell. You're right on it. Who was it that orchestrated the deception on Isaac? Who was it who recommended Jacob flee and solicited Isaac agreement to get Jacob to flee? Rebecca, his mother. That's exactly right. Uh, 
Is there a lesson here for us today in this story? Don't listen to your mother. <laughs> don't listen to your mother, she said. I don't think that's the lesson, but <laughs> good one. Unless your mother's giving you bad advice. So you could have said it this way. Think for yourself. That would have been a good way to say it. Yes. If he didn't flee and he repented and confessed, would he have had to give the birthright back? Uh, was that possible? Once the blessing had been given to him, was it possible to remove it? Esau asked his dad to do it. And what does dad say? I can't do it. It's done. So do we ever, like Jacob, listen to other people to tell us to do something dishonest or tempts us with something we know we shouldn't to act selfishly, to sin, and thereby uh, following their influence, direction, justification, rationalization, whatever, we've listened to some other voice we followed where they say. And then having followed where they say, do we create a mess for ourselves? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then are we like Jacob after having listened to the person that led us into the mess, we then listen to their advice on how to deal with the mess? <laughs> do you see that, that process? She led him into the mess, and then she gives him, here's the advice to deal with the mess. I'm going to suggest it really better, would have been better advice for him to go, Right then to God, I blew it. I messed up. What would you have me do? You will find later, I think it even comes up in the lesson, or it might be next week's lesson, where after, yeah, I think it's next week's lesson with the sin with, with Dinah and what the boys did there in Shechem, that God instructs Jacob at that time to go ahead and move back to Bethel. God came to him and says, move to Bethel. God's completely capable of instructing people to move. Joseph. And Mary, move to Egypt, Herod, until Herod dies. So, I'm going to suggest there's wisdom if somebody has led you to take decisions or make decisions that you recognize in the aftermath. No, that was a bad one. I regret that one. Then maybe you might not want to listen to them for the solution. One of my professors in, in my residency taught us... Uh, it, uh, this little quip. If you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. <laughs> I mean, if you don't do anything, just stop. Stop what you're doing. You're not out of the hole. You're still in your hole. But it doesn't get deeper. And what happens is after people make mistakes, dig a hole for themselves, they frantically dig deeper in their efforts to try to cover up the hole. I can cover the hole by digging the dirt out of the hole. <laughs> but I'm in. I'll fill it up. It just gets deeper. I think one of the biggest challenges for the righteous as we approach the second coming of Christ is going to be resisting actions that seem logical and right from a worldly values perspective. Logical and right from on the surface, but are self-driven rather than faith-driven. I think it's one of the biggest temptations we're going to face. Do something to protect self. It may not actually be an act of sin, it just won't be an action of faith. Well, I'm going to pay my tithe for sure, because that's not mine, it's the Lord's. But I really you know, believe that God wanted me to give an extra offering to this particular mission. But I know that I need to save some money up for, for t troubled times. I see, see inflation's going up. I see, I see uh, the gas prices, food shortages they're predicting. I need to save a little extra money. 
There's no sin in either decision. But if you're under conviction of the Spirit to take an action, do you take the action of faith or the action of self-logic, human protection? This is a simple example. I think this is, we'll be tempted with this over and over again because God wants to free us. Um, the, the, the just shall live by faith. They walk by faith. It, it, they're not blind. It's just that uh, because, because their focus isn't actually on simply the future, their focus is on Jesus and fulfilling his purpose for them at that moment. So they're not blind to, to their, their reasons for trusting Jesus, but they may not see around the corner of tomorrow. Yes. Why didn't Rebecca trust when she was given the promise when the children were born that the older would serve the younger? Why didn't she trust on that? What makes you think she didn't? Well, because of what she did with Jacob. Yeah, wasn't that an act of faith? Just like Rahab. When Rahab lied, she lied because she had faith and she was siding with God. So, so it wasn't Rebecca siding with God by trying to make things turn out this way because she does believe. She believed God, so she realizes Jacob needs to get the inheritance, and so she's working to make it happen. I'm just processing. <laughs> I'm not actually saying I believe that. Okay. <laughs> Some of you, I need to clarify. This is how we can rationalize things. I, I think you're probably right. I don't think she acted in faith at all. She didn't trust God to bring it about. Uh, she was trusting herself to bring it about. I think the, the difference is, I think she believed the promise, she didn't believe God's ability to achieve the promise. There's a difference. And so I was parsing the issue there to point that out. And I think we may do this a lot ourselves. The next assumption or interpretation in that paragraph was when it said, God confronts him at Baal, uh, at Bethel. God confronts him at Bethel. Confronts. Well, that's a strong word. I looked up in the dictionary, and the first listing in the dictionary is... Uh, uh, to face in hostility or defiance to oppose. And when you confront somebody, I'm going to confront you. That's what they said happened. God confronted him at Bethel. It sounds, it connotes a sense of chastisement, a sense of, you've been a naughty boy. That's what confrontation means, doesn't it? Hold accountable. Well, let's actually read. This is where he has his dream of a stairway resting on earth and touching heaven and Jesus standing at the top of the stairway. Uh, and this is what, what the Bible says if you read Genesis twenty-eight twelve to 15. This is what the Lord is recorded as having said to him in the dream. It's, that's the only communication directly from the Lord recorded in this particular setting. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you and wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what, you, what I have promised you. Does that sound like he's confronting him, imposing him? of facing him in hostility and defiance? Would you use the word confront after reading, reading that, or would you use a different word? He did, he, he did what there? Encouraged. He encouraged him, reassured him, comforted him, uplifted him. It's very profound. I, 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 it's a subtle introduction of a falsehood 
because of the biases that people have. He did bad. He's running away because he lied and he cheated. And God has told cheaters accountable, so he's going to confront him there and scare him right again. Exactly. Like God, like God didn't confront Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, Adam, where are you? Who told you? You're not, you, you didn't hear that from me. I'm not the one who said it. That's coming from your own guilty conscience, Adam. This is an important point when studying any Christian material. You need to have a very sound Bible knowledge yourself. When I read this, it just—it was like those words. As soon as I read them, came out like in red letters. I just—it was immediately to me recognition of a introduction of a slant put on the because I knew the text. I knew what was actually happening here. If I didn't know the text, I might have known, well, yeah, I remember he had a dream, and, and I remember that story, but, but if I didn't know it, I might have just accepted this interpretation and had my view of God subtly change. Yeah, if, if, I, if I do something bad and I run away, you know what? Uh, I can't run far enough. God will catch me and he'll confront me. No, he will catch me to encourage me, to love me, to reassure me, to lead me back to the path of righteousness. Sunday's lesson, the point is, you need to have Bible knowledge so that you can discern and think for yourself. And if you don't have that Bible knowledge, then reading other Christian writings can, can lead you astray. Sunday's lesson focused on Jacob and Esau. Why was Jacob, who used the methods of deception, a deceiver, a liar, a trickster, why was he chosen to receive the blessings? <laughs> And not Esau, who, as far as we can tell from the from the the record, uh, he was pretty open and direct. He was pretty blunt. He, you, you see what you get. He wasn't he wasn't uh, you know two faced and deceiving. It's just like he's out there and you get it. But he had no desire for spiritual things uh, to she, be the priest of his family. She said he had no desire for spiritual things. So yes, could it have anything to do with their dispositions, sure. their attitudes? Could their heart attitude towards God, as you're suggesting, have been the difference? Well, well, he's struggling with deception, self-preservation, fear. Me, sir, Jacob, we're talking. He still had a heart that wanted God. He had a desire. What do you think this means? Romans 9, 12 and 13. The, uh, quoting from the, the promise to Rebecca. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Is this referring to God's attitude? God had love for Jacob. Good little boy. This is my favorite little boy. Esau, you're pathetic. I hate you. Is this what it's describing? You know, people read it and that's exactly what they think. Don't they? Many millions have read it and thought that. It's a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. It's functional. Love is functional. Jacob, I have loved, meaning Jacob was open to let me love him operationally. He clung to me. He opened his heart to me. My love was able to work in him. Esau, I couldn't do anything. He closed his heart to me. I couldn't love him. It's not that I didn't love him. I couldn't love him. 
You see the difference? Yeah, but hey is a strong word. Yes, and so this is, uh, though, a Bible expression uh, that doesn't actually mean hate in the way we do it. Here's out of the SDE Bible commentary on this passage in Romans. The strong expression does not imply positive hatred, as the term is used today, but that God had preferred Jacob above Esau in his choice of the progenitor for the chosen race, for the reasons we've already discussed. Operationally, I think it was because he's working with God, his spiritual attitude could functionally be loved. It seems to have been common in biblical times to use the term hate in this sense, meaning hate doesn't mean positive hatred toward, it means actually having love less. And I think that's a functional love less in God's case. But here it goes on. Thus, Jacob's preference for Rachel is compared to his hatred for Leah, even though he had four sons and a daughter with Leah. He hated her. Think that through. Yeah, it wasn't positive hatred. It was, well, yeah, she's fine. But she's awesome! <laughs> okay? That, that's what it means. Love, hate, l- like less. Okay? He goes on to say, similarly, Jesus speaking about hating one's father and mother. Remember that in Luke chapter 14? And hating one's own life. It doesn't mean you actually have positive hatred to yourself or hatred towards your parents. It means that you actually love others less than you love God. You love God more. And you, and, and parents can get this. You love your children more. And if they're in danger, you sacrifice yourself for them, right? You love God more than self. That's what it means. So hating self doesn't actually mean positive hatred. It means loving yourself less than you love God. And so that's what's actually happening here. God love everyone just the same. Yes, in his heart, but not operationally. He could not functionally love Esau as much as he could functionally love Jacob because Jacob opened his heart so God could pour more love and they had more experience and they had more shared time together and they had more intimacy and they had more conversations than over here. I love him in my heart, but we have nothing going on. So he loved him less. Does that make sense? What about those who read in a little broader context in Romans? And instead of just reading about God loved Jacob and hated Esau in chapter 9, they put in the context of chapter 8, where, which, which would be appropriate to do, because he's, he's, uh, this is a whole line of reasoning Paul is working out here. And you know when Paul wrote, there were no chapter and verse divisions. Okay, it's one long letter. And this is what he writes in chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And they put this together, and they claim that what happened to Jacob and Esau doesn't have anything to do with their attitudes, doesn't have anything to do with their personalities, doesn't have anything to do with their abilities, doesn't have anything to do with their willingness, it has to do with God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, and God has predestined and predetermined that Jacob would be the one, and, and, and Esau would be the one. And God softened Jacob's heart, and he hardened Esau's heart. Don't you understand God is sovereign? Do you understand what I just presented? I didn't make up. This is a common concept in Christianity. So if you meet somebody like that, what do you, how do you understand the verse? They say, and they quote the verse to you. He foreknew, and there he predestined. He justified. And some he, he, he predestines for love, and some he predestines for hate, some he predestines for salvation, some he predestines for, for damnation. It's God's choice. Do what you want. It's God's choice. This is a common theology. And your answer. God doesn't predestine. How does God's law function? Okay. 
If you, so if you understand God's laws functioning, you can see there's something wrong with this. Which law would, would immediately tell you my, the interpretation of this text that I just presented cannot be true? Which law? Law of freedom. The law of freedom, law of liberty. Because what can't exist if we're not free to make our own choices? Love cannot exist. So if, if, if you have a God of love, then we have to actually be free to make the choice. God can't make that choice or predetermine it for us. That's the law of liberty, because love is always destroyed when you take freedom. Robots can't love. Programmed computers can't love. So law of liberty can tell you that interpretation is false. Well, then, what's, then, then, then how do you understand it, though? What's being said here? It's like you said earlier. God can't work in someone's heart if they're not willing to accept him. So in this case, people are accepting him working with them in their lives. So, you know, you're exactly right. Russell's, Russell's got, you know, the foundational key, what law lends. If the law lends is human law, God makes up rules, God is a rule enforcer, then that leads to the sovereignty of God being causal of these things. God wants it to happen, God makes it happen. He's the one with power. If, if, if your view is design law and you understand the law of liberty, then God does make up, make up the universe. He creates it, and he creates and uh, enforces the laws, which are design laws upon which reality operates, and he won't deviate from them, and one of them is that law of freedom. So then what's the... But it's not the only law. They're the laws of physics, gravity, he sustains as well. And there's another law that he created. And remember, God is not subject to the laws that he sustains. The laws are subject to him. Like gravity? He's not subject to gravity. Gravity is subject to him. Does that make sense? And so is time. God is the creator of time. He is not subject to time. Time uh, is subject to him, and God lives outside of what we understand as time. That's why he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The future and the past are alike outspread to God. God exists in all points in time. Okay? So then you go back and you understand the sovereign, infinite being who lives outside of our, what we call space-time. And the Bible describes it as unapproachable light, an infinite aspect of reality that we really can't enter or fully appreciate. Conceptually, we can get kind of the idea of it. Remember, it says in Colossians that for, um, by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, uh, thrones and powers, rulers and authorities. Nothing was created that has been created. All things uh, are before him and all things hold together through him. He is the sustainer creator and it holds all together. So God uh, is sustaining time. And so put that together then. Key word in the passage, those God foreknew. What does it mean in the Bible to know someone? Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Intimacy. Intimacy. Oh, Jesus said life eternal is that you might no. know God. He said to the wicked that claimed, we did all this in your name, we cast out demons, and get ye hence ye workers of iniquity, I never knew. He didn't know their names? He didn't have their social security numbers? He didn't know their DNA sequences. He knew who they were, right? This isn't cognitive knowledge. It is intimate connection with. And so those God foreknew. 
those God, those who from our linear existence are in the future that God in the future knows and has intimacy with, those are the ones that he has predetermined in our existence will be conformed to his likeness. Why? Because they're reconnected with him, and that's what happens. That's a natural outcome. These two brothers, Jacob and Esau, real people, did real historic stuff. But as we've pointed out many, many times, I'm going to start making this a theme with our design law theme, our integrative evidence-based approach to theme. We've got several themes in here. Here's another theme of Scripture. One of the themes of Scripture is the central thread of Scripture. The whole story of the Old Testament is Genesis 3.15, promised Messiah is coming, and everything you see happening is focused in that area because that's where the plan of salvation, the promise will be realized through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's children all the way down through Judah. And that's why the Bible focuses there and not on other people groups in history because that's, that's the central focus of the plan, the plan of salvation and Satan's opposition to it. So another one of these uh, themes we'll have again and again is real historic people recorded in Bible doing real historic stuff, but many of their historic experiences are recorded for the purpose of also communicating an object lesson of a larger reality. So we are described in the New Testament as having uh, the wedding, eating at the, at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the saved. Being a child of Abraham is not about Isaac and Jacob. It's not about genetics. We've gone through that before. All those who are of Jesus, Paul says, are heirs of Abraham, uh, descendants of Abraham, and heirs according to the promise. We get to receive the promise. The promise of what? That we get to inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the earth. We will receive the promise. If we're children of Abraham, what's it mean to be a child of Abraham? To have faith like Abraham, such that you open your heart and have your heart circumcised from attachments of worldliness and selfishness. If you do that, you're a child of Abraham. And if you do that, then being a child of Abraham, having faith and trust, your heart is reoriented, you're set right in heart with God, the heart is cut away from the world, and thus you are a child of Isaac, you're a miracle birth. You who were dead in trespass and sin are reborn to a new life, a miracle birth. And if you have had the faith of Abraham, had your heart cut away from the earth, uh, been a child of Isaac, been reborn to a new life in Christ, then you want to be a child of Jacob. You, with God, wrestle against your own fleshly, earthly desires, your own fear and selfishness, your own carnal nature, until with God's strength you get the victory and you get a new name. He puts his name on our foreheads. We are like Christ. We're Christian. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's an object lesson there for us. Now, it's interesting that after the Hebrews leave Egypt after their enslavement, wander through the wilderness, as they're about to enter the promised land, this is an object lesson for us. I want you to, I'm going to tell you history, but you should be thinking, what's the application for where we are today? Okay? As they're about to enter the promised land, God instructs them, that they are to go through Edom. Edom is the land occupied by the descendants of Esau. So his instruction, go through the promised land. It's time to go. It's out of the wilderness. Cross over, go to Edom. And he instructs them, anything that you use in Edom, water, hunting, fishing, any resources, pay them. Pay them for anything you use, the Edomites. 
the king of Edom, they, they asked permission to go. The king of Edom said, no, send out soldiers. If you come into our territory, we'll attack you. What did they do? They became afraid and they ran and they didn't follow God's instructions to go through Edom. So they went around, wandering further in the wilderness area till they finally got there. If they would have trusted God, is there strong biblical evidence in other places when they trusted God? I don't know, maybe like the Red Sea? And Jericho, another place? If they trusted him, would he have intervened for them if they're following the path that he told them? But they didn't. They wanted, they didn't want to have to actually hunt for a well. Believe it or not, some of them still wanted just to have the miracle water out of the rock. Going into Edom, they wouldn't, it was a fertile land. Lots of resources. They wouldn't, uh, God wouldn't need to supply their need out of a miracle rock anymore. But they didn't. They ran, went back into the wilderness, and they eventually made it over. But is there an object lesson? So what's the object lesson for us? If you want to read uh, Ellen White's account of that, you can go to um, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 422. She'll, she has a whole long description about what happened there. Very interesting. God has instructed us. We're on our way to the heavenly promised land. We should have been, if we had followed what God wanted, we would have arrived, uh, several people have said. But what's the, what's the analogy or the application of Edom? Edom were the descendants, they were relatives, but they didn't believe in Yahweh and they didn't worship Yahweh, but they weren't hardened like the Canaanites where they were beyond redemption. The Canaanites have been so hardened like Sodom and Gomorrah, there no truth, no light would reach them. But the Edomites, why they didn't worship God, they were still open and could have been reached with the gospel or the truth about God. This is why God sent, wanted the people to go through Edom, to, to, to give and to, and to purchase and to not exploit and to share what God had done from them. And there would have been Edomites that would have come into the camp. This was the plan. But they didn't trust God because they were afraid. They were afraid of the threats coming. So Edom, there are people in the world, not, not in the church, who are not hardened against God. But they also are not worshipers of God. They can be reached. We are, we are called to go into the world, into the highways and the byways, to hit the gospel to every nation, kingdom, tribe, and people. Yet, we have various threats. If you talk about your religion at work, you will lose your job. But you can talk about your sexual exploits, and you will get a bonus. <laughs> no, it's true. You can talk about all kinds of crazy sex stuff at work. But if you talk about your faith in Christ, you can also talk about Buddha. You can talk about Satan worship. All kinds of cults. Is my battery dead? Me or her? Okay, okay. My battery's still good. We'll see how long it lasts. But the point, uh, some some in the world are faced with actual imprisonment, arrest, stoning, beheading. That's, That's real right now in some places of the world. So our challenge, 
Understand, the kings of this world, like the king of Edom, the king of Edom did not want them coming into his territory and converting people that would leave his tax base and go with them into another land and take riches away from him and power away from him. He wanted his power. He wanted his his serf workers. The kings of this world do not want us witnessing the gospel. They don't want people relieved of fear. They want mindless serfs who can be easily directed by some voice of authority to this way or that way so they will feel more safe even though they are destroying themselves following these corrupt directions. So our response, do not go our own way, but follow where God leads us. That's our responsibility. Ask, where are you leading, Lord? Where are you leading? Is it his plan? Because he can be trusted, and he will provide for If If he's called us, he will provide for any need we have to fulfill the call. He never calls us without supplying the resources to fulfill the call if we trust him and follow him and uh, to achieve the goal. And the goal, of course, is saving souls. Fourth paragraph. For Jacob, in contrast to his brother, the future spiritual significance of blessing is what matters. Yet later, under the instigation of his mother, Jacob openly and purposely deceives his father, even using the name of the Lord your God in perpetrating that deception. He commits this terrible deception, even though it was for something he knew was good. The lesson highlights a very important point here. Very important point. And that is the difference between goals, principles, and methods. You can have good goals... And good principles. In other words, you're advancing a principle. I want to advance a principle, say, of saving lives. That's a good principle. But then I might use methods that are contrary to God's in order to save lives. Let's go to the Dark Ages. Some of the people in the Roman system were sitting out for power and control, but there were many in the system who believed the system and what the system told them. And they would burn the witches because you had to save lives and protect. They would burn the heretic at the stake. And if you give him last rites, you could save an eternal soul. It was right to do because we're saving souls from hell. They might burn a few minutes with the wood fire, but they won't burn in the eternal fire if they recant. That's a good thing to do. And that's what happens when you don't separate goals that might be good, it's good to save souls from hell. It's good to protect life. But then we're willing to use Satan's methods to achieve it. And this is how the beast is gaining power. It comes with power. And you saw this during COVID. I couldn't tell you the corruption. I will outline a lot of it in my talk in July. But the irrational and inconsistent thoughts that were uh, and decisions that were made from the principle of saving lives. And because when you violate God's law, when you violate his methods, you introduce harm. Did Jacob, by deceiving his father, introduce good? Did 
Sarah, by soliciting Hagar to be the surrogate, introduced good. But it was a good goal. The method wasn't good. And I can tell you that the methods and actions taken dealing with COVID have caused multiple times more deaths. And those deaths will be cascading down for 50 or 60 years or more because of what happened. Than any life that they protected. And the sad reality is this was not something that we go, oh, we had no idea. We really intended good. And, and now that we see, we're really sorry we did it. We, it. we just learned the new lesson. We had no idea. We, we really, no. Anybody with discernment of God's principles saw this from the beginning. We saw it. We warned against it. You can go back and look at our classes from 2020. One record saying this stuff. Because you can't, you can't have health while violating the laws of health. And that includes spiritual laws, laws for our minds, our relationships. Can't win God's cause by using Satan's methods. Can't do it. And this is what we call the ends justify the means mentality or values. If you see people arguing ends justifying the means, you should have major caution flags waving on you know, their, their motivation and what they're trying to achieve. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. As soon as Esau learns that Jacob has received his father's blessing, he understands that he has been deceived and supplanted by his brother, and he wants to kill him. Rebecca is worried and wants to prevent the crime that would be fatal for both sons. So with the support of Isaac, she urges Jacob to flee to her family. On his way to exile, Jacob encounters God in a dream at a place that he will call Bethel, the house of God, and there will make a vow. Why did Rebecca encourage Jacob to flee? Because she was afraid Esau's going to kill him. When we use Satan's methods to try to achieve godly goals, we always make matters worse. We always make, she made it worse by doing the, the deception, and then she never, my understanding, she never saw Jacob again. Never saw her son again after that. We introduce dis- when we use Satan's methods, we introduce dysfunction, pain, suffering, conflict, alienation, fear, selfishness. Have we seen families alienated during the last two years? Conflict, dysfunction in our society, in our churches. You can be sure all that is evidence that Satan's methods are at work. God's methods bring us into unity. There's a unity inherent in our faith. There's a harmony inherent. See, we can disagree on lots of things that we understand or believe if we are have the same foundation in the principles of God, truth, loving each other, and freedom. Okay, uh, here's why I see it this way, but I respect you don't, you don't see it. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. If we practice those methods, there's a, we can still have great fellowship and harmony. I, I don't expect everyone to agree with me. In fact, I agree with what General Patton said. If everybody's thinking the same thing, somebody's not thinking. <laughs> That's exactly right. We are better because we challenge each other. And I learn from you. Hopefully you learn from me, but we learn from each other. So some of the methods that were used, 
that were damaging to society, to families, to churches. Purposeful lies, known falsehoods, we're told. There's a whole list of them. I won't go into them. Silencing, censoring, obstructing honest people from seeking to ask questions and investigate with reliable evidence. That was shut down. That's not godly. Jesus said, everything I do in the open, Satan's is a a system of secrecy and shutting down investigation. Interfering with the normal, historic, established standards of medical ethics and practice. Informed consent, freedom uh, uh, between the physician and patient to choose the best treatment in their circumstance. This was all interfered with. Adding coercive pressure to undermine liberty. You know, this is not godly. God doesn't do this. Terminating from employment. Can't attend college. Interfering with the normal practice of religion. Shutting down church attendance. Finding people who were in, sitting in their own cars in a parking lot hearing a, a, a bullhorn sermon. Quarantining asymptomatic healthy people. Slandering, vilifying people who asked questions, who presented contrary evidence. These are just the methods employed. And do you know how many people in various church groups supported this methodology? <laughs> I've read it in some of uh, the Adventist material. People using, using these very methods. And the results do speak for themselves, as is predictable. Our challenge when faced threats in this world is to resist the urge to make fear-based decisions and instead, despite the fear, make truth and love-based decisions. What's the truth? What's love? Trusting God with outcomes. The fear-based decision is about me protecting self and trying to control the world around us and how things turn out. So when you think of Bethel, the place where God gave him the vision of the latter, what do you think about Did Jacob meet God there because Jacob stumbled on a magic geographic location? (laughs) There was a thinning of the cosmic barriers in heaven and earth, and Jesus was able to communicate through that thinned barrier. Uh, Was Jacob very lucky he had stumbled upon this place? Or did God go to Jacob, where Jacob was at that particular point in his journey, with a message Jacob needed to hear at that point in his life? Nothing magic about the place. Do you know that many people, though, you know, hold to some special, that, that place is, is, is magical, special in some way. What does God show us by meeting Jacob there? Okay, the situation, Jacob's situation, is? Fear. Fear, discouragement, running for his life, guilt, shame. That's why he's there, running. He's afraid. He had sinned against his father, against his brother. They're seeking, and he's seeking to protect self. Does this remind you of another story? Russell already mentioned it. Adam running after his sin and hiding. How did God respond? Reached out to him. He reached out. So understand, when we sin, the natural impact of sin on your heart and mind, the normal, if you hit your finger with a hammer, boom! What's the normal experience in doing that. What do you experience? Pain. Pain. Yes, pain. Pain is normal. So when you sin, there's a normal internal emotional reaction to that. Guilt, 
shame, fear. Guilt, shame, fear. This is an overreaction from sin. Fear of rejection, fear of punishment, fear of not being loved, fear of humiliation. If if you're not resonating with me, just think of some sin in your life. I don't need to know it. Don't broadcast it. But just think if that sin was put out publicly. Does that frighten you? And that's what Satan banks on. The fear, rejection from the shame and the guilt cause us to isolate, cause us to learn how to put up facades and wear our little righteous masks so that when we meet each other, we don't really connect. When Jesus comes, 1 John tells us that we will see him face to face. Why will we do it? Because we will know him and he knows us. We will be known. This is what it means to be known. You have disrobed and you've undressed. Not physically. From your soul. And you let Jesus, who knocks at the door, come in with his cleansing presence to get the filth out and put in the purity, the peace. So the shame and guilt is taken away. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So the historic deeds are not something you live in shame of because you're no longer a thief. You're no longer a murderer. You're no longer an adulterer. Whatever it was, you're not that person. You're a new person in Christ. And so the history of David's murdering Uriah never changes. That's historical. But David got a new heart, so he was no longer a murderer. Underrated spirit. This is the reality, transformational, regenerational, recreational. It's design law, fixing the brokenness. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, sin. sin of the world. And where does sin happen? That's right. So God meets Jacob after his sin, running, at, running away in fear and shame and guilt. And God meets him with his love, with his promise, the promise he gave to Adam. A Messiah is coming. Through you, all the children of the world will be blessed. And God does this for every one of us. When you run, he runs after you. He'll find you. And if you take your hand off your eyes because you're ashamed, if you take the fingers out of your ears and you listen, you'll hear him telling you that if you trust him, he'll heal you. He'll save you. He'll fix it. Four paragraphs. A stone that Jacob put his head on suggests that this is a reference to the the sanctuary. It says uh, the temple, the center of God's uh, saving activity for humanity. Could this stone represent the cornerstone that was rejected by men and used to be the, the cornerstone foundation for the temple? Could it represent that? In other words, could it represent Jesus? He put his head in Jesus' hands. Okay. About the idea of it pointing to the temple. What do you think it means, the sanctuary, as the center of God's saving activity for humanity? Does that sound geographical? He's in some place out past Orion, in some you know building that takes up three times the size of our solar system. Does it sound geographical? He's in, he's in a building up there, or it's a smaller building than that. It's got smoke. Candles burning. 
Do you hear this? The sanctuary is the center of his, of his, uh, as I say this again, the temple, the sanctuary, the center of God's saving activity for humanity. Well, let me ask you some questions. What is God saving us from? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saving us from sin. Understand that's reality. The false gospel, which most of Christianity accepts, is that he's saving us from the punishment of sin. That's what he's saving us from. That's human law. Sin is breaking the rules. God, as a just magistrate and overseer of rules, is required to enforce the minimum penalty, which he warned ahead of time for, which is death. Therefore, God is required to kill and execute. So we need to be saved from the punishment. And Jesus is at the center of the sanctuary, pleading his blood to the Father, so the Father won't execute us. This is the false gospel. He is not saving us from inflicted punishment. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let me ask you this. Where does sin exist or happen or operate or consolidate or occur? Can sin, does sin exist, operate, occur in non-living matter? I got a rock. I got, a, I got some sin in that rock. <laughs> then if sin can't exist in non-living matter, can you have sin in record books? Then can cleansing the universe of sin, if it doesn't exist in books, be achieved by erasing the account of sins in books? Are records of sin, records of sin, the same as sin? If an angel reads the Bible story of David and Bathsheba, has the angel encountered sin? Has the angel been contaminated by sin? We're told the heavenly sanctuary is contaminated by the record of sins. Is heaven contaminated by historical accounts of deeds that have occurred? That's what we're told. Would Jesus, in order to cleanse heaven from sin, need to destroy all the Bibles? Well, that's where the records of sin, you're going to read some horrible things in next week's lesson, some dastardly things at Shechem. Bastardly. So if sin does not occur, does not exist, occur, operate in non-living material, if it doesn't exist in records, then saving sinners from sin, cleansing the universe from sin, cleansing the sanctuary from sin, is not the process of erasing records of sin. It's not that. But that's what we're told it is. And that's why there's a form of godliness with no power. And that's why the church languishes. And that's why we wander in the wilderness. And that's why the three angels' message has not gone to the world. And that's why we're still stuck here. Cleansing the sanctuary means cleansing sinners from the condition of sin. And where does that work happen? In the heart and mind. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And if the sanctuary is the center of this work in saving people from sin, cleansing people from sin, Malachi 3 comes suddenly, uh, he comes to his temple as a launderer's soap and a refiner's fire to cleanse something. What does he cleanse according to the text? The Levites. The Levites, the people. The people who believe in God are being cleansed of sin. 
That's what the cleansing is. That's the work that's being done. Jesus is cleansing, and you read in the New Testament, he's cleansing his bride, his church, to make her a pure bride so that he can come back and we can see him face to face because we are like him. This is the message to the world. Let's see if I have anything else I want to share in the last couple of minutes. So, interesting story in Thursday's lesson. I actually had a long section from uh, Wednesday's lesson, uh, where it talked about, boy, I really wanted to read that. Uh, maybe we'll close, and I'll just read this from the remedy. This is out of Genesis 29, verse 31, uh, through Genesis 30, verse 24. The lesson tells us to read these texts. That's what they refer us to in the lesson on Wednesday. I'm going to read it to you from the remedy. I just want you to consider what you hear. Why is it recorded? What's the lesson? The Lord saw Leah was not loved like Rachel, so he enabled her to become pregnant very easily, but Rachel remained childless. So Leah did become pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, saying, The Lord has seen my misery and given me a son. Surely my husband will love me now. Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, which means the Lord hears, saying, The Lord has heard that I am not loved, so he gave me this son too. Again, Leah became pregnant uh, and gave birth to another son. She named him Levi, which means joined, saying, Surely my husband will be more tightly joined to me because I have given him three sons. Leah became pregnant once again and gave birth to a fourth son. She named him Judah, which means praise, saying, This time, rather than seeking to earn my husband's love, I will praise the Lord. After that, she stopped having children. When Rachel realized that she was not having children for Jacob, she became insecure as his wife and envied her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children, for without them I might as well be dead. Jacob was upset that she placed this responsibility on him and said, I have done my part, but I'm not God. <laughs> and he has not yet chosen to enable you to get pregnant. <laughs> Take ma taking matters into her own hands, she said, Then take my maidservant Bilhah and impregnate her as my surrogate. Then she can bear children for me so that I can uh, build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a surrogate. Jacob had sex with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Then Rachel exclaimed, God has heard my request and answered me favorably. Therefore, she named him Dan, which means God judges favorably. Rachel's servant Bilhah became pregnant again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have fought hard to give my husband's son so I can be equal to my sister. Yeah. Okay. And I have finally done it. So she named him Nephtali, which means my fight. That when Leah realized that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a surrogate. Zilpah. Zilpah, Leah's servant, bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, How lucky I am to give my husband a troop of sons. So she named him Gad, which means good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob another son, and Leah said, I am so happy. Now all the other women will call me most blessed. So she named him Asher, which means happy. During the harvest, Reuben found some mandrake plants in the field and gave them to his mother, Leah. Mandrakes were believed to increase fertility. So Rachel, saw, when, so when Rachel saw them, she said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Denying her marital duplicity and focusing on her legal status as first married, rather than focusing on the bonds of love, she projected her guilt onto Rachel and said, that's a little interpretive, on Rachel and saying, he was my husband first, and you stole his love from me. That's in the text, that part. <laughs> Isn't it enough for you 
Do you want my son's mandrakes too? (laughs) Desperate for anything that might help her get pregnant, Rachel said, okay, I'll let him sleep with you tonight if you give me your son's mandrakes. Leah met Jacob when when he came in from the fields that evening and said, Rachel and I made a deal. Reuben brought me mandrakes and I traded them with her and she agreed for you to sleep with me tonight. So he slept with her that night. God answered Leah's prayer, and she became pregnant and bore bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me, just as if giving my maidservant to my husband was right. So she named him Issachar, which means God rewards. Leah again became pregnant and bore a sixth son. Uh, Then Leah proclaimed, God has given me a precious gift. Now I have borne my husband's six sons. He will surely honor me. So she named him Zebulun, which means honor. Later, she gave him a daughter named Dinah. God never forgot Rachel, and he answered her prayers by healing her infertility and thus enabling her to have children, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God God has taken away my shame. May he add to me another son. So she named him Joseph. Uh, We don't have time to explore all that. (laughs) But I want you to think about that. Many deep lessons in there. Many, many deep lessons. I wish we had time to explore. Next week, we'll probably have time to go into some of those elements as well. Uh, What's going on? Why was it recorded? What are the object lessons? Many, many powerful object lessons in that story. Uh, The human, human factor, the jealousy factor, the dynamics factor, the selfish factors. Incredible, incredible, incredible story. Then God's grace through it all. How gracious God is and patient God is. Gracious Father in heaven. You know that we were all, since Adam and Eve's fall, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and we all struggle with fear, selfishness, insecurity, and, and the propensities of this fallen world. Uh, but, but your grace is greater. Jesus is overcome. And we ask that your spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, uh, cast out the fear, strengthen our faith, fill us with your love, enable us to be firm friends of yours, standing true to your kingdom at this time in human history, that we can shine forth that eternal gospel that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.